Fast Forward Productions. The women are speaking. Welcome to Initiated Survivor, where we connect to our fiercest fuck community of survivors and badassery ensues. I'm Kelsey Harper. I'm a clinical psychologist and survivor, and I love to bring us together to share our stories as well as practical tips to recover and reclaim our lives. As a community, we have truly formidable power to change our world, so thank you so much for being here. Here, we discuss topics relevant to survivors of gender-based violence. Some of these discussions may be triggering and contain adult content. Please be mindful of your needs throughout. Welcome everyone back to Initiated Survivor. I'm really excited for today. I have an episode where I am interviewing a colleague and a friend of mine, and we're going to be talking about gender-based violence with adolescents. And she has such a unique and important perspective to share with us. So I'm so excited that you're here. Thank you, Kelsey. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Can you introduce yourself to everybody? Absolutely. So my name is Kaylee Cornielson. My pronouns are she and her, and I'm a social worker, therapist, trainer, and facilitator, and a consultant. Yeah, I have done a lot of stuff around teen and young adult development, and that's what I mostly focus my practice on. So I see teens and young adults in therapy, but I also do a lot of training and facilitation for caring adults in young people's lives. So that's other social workers, other therapists, teachers, healthcare providers, students who are getting degrees in social work and public health and things like that. So that's a lot of what I do. My practice focuses on most of the things that young people are dealing with. So things like identity formation, who am I? What do I want to do with my life? What's next? Relationships, a lot of which we're going to talk about today, and also healthy social media use, which I love to talk about. So I won't get into that, but those are some (laughs) of the things that I kind of do, you know, with my practice as a therapist and also as a trainer. And just, you know, a couple of kind of like personal-ish things about me is that I'm a theater kid, so I love to talk and be the center of attention. So this is great. But I'm also a parent to a 15-month-old. And I'll also share too, because of the space that you're holding in this podcast, I'm also a survivor. So I feel really safe in this space with you. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for being here and for sharing all of that. I wanted to ask because... I feel like in our culture, adolescents and teens, they are in such this really tough spot in this age because they are still obviously in development. They're still needing a lot of support and care, but they also have a culture around them that continues to invalidate them and act as though like teens are bananas or that this is a terrible age, you know, and parents talk about dreading it oftentimes because of the messaging from our culture. And so they're kind of like this community or population, or at least my experience of them has been there. They're this community of people in our world that actually are incredibly influential. Like when we're looking at the adolescents right now, like doing these big movements and like walking out of schools and like getting very politically active. It's like, it's giving me hope 
hope for the future, but we often really, really push back on them. So I was wondering when you said that you specialize in working with teens, I think that's such a wonderful community and population to specialize in. What drew you to do that work? That's a good question. I never intended to work with this group, actually, as as most good things in life come out of unexpected circumstances. When I was getting my MSW, I had an internship in an organization that worked with survivors of intimate partner violence and sexual assault. I did my internship there on the adult side of the work. But when I graduated, the only job opening they had was on their prevention education team. And that was the team that was going into high schools, middle schools, alternative settings with young people to educate them on dating violence, sexual assault, bystander intervention, what is consent, all that good stuff. I did that work for four years. I just fell in love with working with them. I thought that they were just so smart and fun and had the most interesting things to say. And I've worked with young people ever since. And exactly what you were saying, Kelsey, they give me hope for the future because they just do things that you don't think are possible. And they look at the world in a different way. They're not so bogged down with like, well, this is how we've always done it. Or this is the way it has to be. They're like, no, it doesn't. Yeah. I mean, I love that because it's kind of reflecting that energy that our culture tends to say is such a problem with teens of like the pushback as actually like a superpower because they force us to really examine and look at the ways in which that we have overly committed to things just out of routine or habit or tradition and are also kind of illuminating that we can really build whatever world we want to. And they're pairing that like right now with so much activism and a lot of push. And I love seeing that. I think that gives all of us energy to do that. So thank you, teens of the world. Shout out to the young people. Yes. I will (laughs) say that I briefly mentioned the social media piece. That's why I like talking about social media with young people. They use it in the coolest ways. And a lot of times as adults, we fear social media because we didn't grow up with it the way young people are growing up with it now. But it's such a platform for activism. Again, I won't go too far down that rabbit hole, but yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe for another episode. Yeah, maybe. (laughs) That's awesome. So today we're talking about gender-based violence with adolescents. That's like intimate partner violence, sexual assault, that kind of thing. How would you define how this shows up with adolescents or with teens today? Yeah, I think that the definition is the same as when we think about it with adults. So I typically would say it's a pattern of behaviors used to gain or maintain power and control over a dating partner or intimate partner of some form. When we think about the different types of intimate partner violence for youth, I always When I'm training on this topic or talking to young people about experiences that they've had, I'm always making sure that we're, of course, covering physical, mental and emotional sexual abuse. But also folks forget that young people can also experience financial abuse because that looks different for them than it might for an adult. And we also have to think about digital abuse, too. Of course, those things show up for adults as well. But for young people, especially the digital stuff, I think when adult caregivers or supportive adults in their lives are looking at warning signs or tactics maybe someone is using, those get missed sometimes. For the financial aspect of it, things like 
preventing a young person from getting to their job. Yeah, that might not be how they're supporting themselves because they're living at home with family, but that has an impact on them. Or I'm always insisting that I pay for a date. And then I'm using that to say, I expect something from you later on. And then the digital stuff. I mean, there's just so many different aspects of that that come into play that we see ways that abuse can show up. So, you know, things like comments and asking for pictures and then sharing them and stuff like that. That's obvious. But other things, too, like constant text messaging, saying who you can and can't follow, tracking your activity on social media. So we really make sure to cover that piece of it as well. I think one of the things that was coming up as you were describing this, and I'm really interested to hear what you have to say, is I think about how teens are also in these very, very intense, tight communities. And so I imagine also a lot of or understand a lot of power and coercive control being exacted through manipulating social relationships, which while that happens also with adults, that tends to look more like isolation and withdrawal from people that are primarily supportive of them from families, that kind of stuff. And with teens, and this maybe is a bit of an assumption on my part in some of what I've observed with some of the teens that I've worked with, that there's a lot more direct interaction oftentimes between the person who's engaging in the control with that social network and utilizing kind of pulling all of the different relationships into different things, lots of social threats, because social communities are so important and vital for teens and their development, as well as what's so important to them as part of who they know themselves to be their own value. And there, it feels like there's a lot that's going on there. What do you say about that? What do you understand about that? Yeah, I think you're right on that. The social aspect of it plays a huge role because it's developmentally appropriate for young people at that time of life to be moving away from family of origin and becoming more engaged with their peer groups. So when something in that sphere is sort of threatened or manipulated, the stakes feel super, super high for them. And it also comes out in activities Two, who are really engaged in drama club or a certain sport or something. So you can see, oh, don't go to practice. Just, you know, stay with me. If you really loved me, you would skip that rehearsal. Sabotage control in activities and friend groups. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And manipulating those. I think you're right on with that. Yeah, it's making me think a lot, especially when with the control piece and the blocking access, I'm like having all these flashbacks to my experiences. <laughs> and I remember as a teen, I had a high school boyfriend. And when he started expressing his interest in me, one of the things that he would do was he would show up at my classes to walk me to my next class. And as like this 15-year-old who's never had a boyfriend before was like, oh, this is so romantic and this is so sweet. And even some of the teachers were like kind of joking about him being such a sweet little puppy dog because he was showing up to every one of my classes, which, you know, now that I look back at that, one, I'm also just like, that meant he was leaving his classes early because he was getting to mine before classes would end. 
but also seeing how controlling that was because I didn't get to talk to any friends during those breaks. You know, he was glued to me, walking me to my next class, like really, really honing in my attention to him and really holding it there. And he did that for months before the relationship actually started to develop into dating. And so at the time, like it just seemed like, oh, this is really cute and fun and flirty. And wow, I got all this great attention. And now looking back, I'm like, oh my gosh, that is actually really, really controlling. And to me, if I had seen that as an adult, it would be very concerning. So I also can understand where teens may also overlook some of this stuff or call it love because we also have a lot of media and socialization, especially around like heteropatriarchal ideas of relationships that put this idea that especially cis male obsession with females and with this kind of like never ending pursuit and demand and desperation for attention and affection and connection and that kind of thing is seen as just like not only normalized, but actually as desirable when that's actually setting up a lot of teens to experience violence, but also to be believing that violence is the way to express their feelings. There's key differences between how adolescents and adults present in this. One of the ones you mentioned was kind of similarly with financial abuse, as well as social media abuse and digital abuse. What are some of the things that you see as really key differences that we might overlook as adult allies? Yes. Well, and I think you were speaking to a couple of them just now too. One thing is that oftentimes this is a first relationship and young people don't really know what is healthy or unhealthy or abusive. And when I talk with young people in particular, we sort of define those three distinct categories. So the difference between something that's unhealthy where you're not getting your needs met, maybe your communication isn't great versus abusive, where someone's working to assert power and control over you. And it's in a pattern of behavior. So we try to distinguish between the two. So yeah, a lot of times when it's a first relationship, we don't know. We're like, oh, this is great. They're showing up at my class to walk me or you know, they're texting me nonstop all the way through school all the way through dinner with my family, all the way through soccer practice. And I didn't get any sleep last night because they wanted me to stay up all night texting back and forth. That's just normal. That just means that they like me. And the other piece of it was exactly what you were saying is this belief that love is jealousy, which we're fed in every love song and every movie, TV show, that constant pursuit that you were describing as well. I've had young people flat out say, well, if they're not jealous, they don't like me enough. Okay. Cool. <laughs> Let's unpack that because we're taught that, right? That that is how someone should show. Like they should be checking in on me. They should be wanting to know who's texting me and all of that stuff. And so taking a step back, often we'll talk about, okay, jealousy is a feeling, but it's what you do with that feeling that counts. So if someone's using that to control who you talk to, where you go, who your friends are, et cetera that doesn't fall into that healthy relationship category. Other things I would say that are different for this age group, and this is interesting as it shows up in research around this too, is that it is less differentiated by gender. We see young 
men. And unfortunately, a lot of the research only looks at boys and girls, men and women. And so we're missing our non-binary young people and young people who have different gender identities. So just naming that. We do see young men reporting, especially mental and emotional abuse, at close to similar rates as girls. Now, when we talk about physical and sexual abuse, girls are still reporting much higher rates than boys in a lot of the research. So that I find to be really interesting. Sometimes we'll see this like bi-directional control going on with young people where we're both trying to assert power and control over each other, which gets confusing. I think especially as adult supporters and especially as therapists, like, oh, okay, what do we do with that? When you're telling me all these things, I'm like, yep, that's checking all my boxes for identifying an abusive relationship. But then you tell me you're doing a lot of the same things back to your partner. Wow. Okay. That's tricky too. So we do see that. I'd like to talk a little bit more about that if that's okay. Yeah. Yeah. Because I think that's something that we've seen in adult relationships, especially really public cases where there's this myth that's perpetuated around mutual abuse, this idea. And what I understand about it is, is that often there's reactionary abuse of like, I'm trying to defend, protect, or get control over an abusive situation by doing these different things. And there still is someone who is in primary control. What concerns me about this myth mostly is, is that our communities use it as a way of not caring about the people that are involved in it of like, well, they're doing it to each other. And so therefore like that's on them as though like somehow, like if someone's a victim and someone's a perpetrator, it's really easy to rush in and be fully in support of the victim and do whatever we can to get that person out and to protect them and defend them and all this other stuff. And if there's mutual quote unquote, mutual abuse, because that definitely is a myth with adult relationships in that way, the way it's understood of like, it just happens to both people. We kind of just go, oh, well, that's their business. We're not getting involved, which always surprises me because I'm like, but this is also like, even if this was true, which, you know, we go on a thought experiment around that. Like, why are we dismissing people that are engaging in violence together? Like, that's dangerous. That's harmful. And, you know, do we care about humans? Like, yes, we would want that to stop. When you're talking about that with teens, I'm wondering if you could specify more about how that shows up and how you interact with it as a therapist for them too. And especially with attention to like how as adults, we can make sure that we're not engaging in that complacency that we're tempted into with mutual abuse, because I think it's so important that we're not doing that. But I'd love to hear your thoughts on that as well, especially with regards to teens. Yeah, absolutely. I think that for me, I have to take a step back and check some of my biases around, you know, my early career feelings around like abusers are bad. And I never would work with an abuser. That was one of my mantras kind of early in my career and taking a step back and understanding that things can be more complicated than that black and white thinking. Like you're talking about, like just because there's retaliation or there's things that someone's done to keep themselves safe or try to get control back in a relationship, it doesn't make it so black and white. And so I think what I do with young people in particular, when some of this comes up, is just thinking about what does a healthy relationship look like to you? 
and having that conversation first. Because I think we don't talk about that with anybody, really, a lot of times, but especially for young people who are figuring this stuff out. If you're thinking about like a good, healthy relationship, what are the things that you would want? Okay. They're like, well, we trust each other. Okay. But what, what does trust look like in action? Okay. So you're describing what it looks like. How is that showing up in your relationship? Are you trusting your partner? Because to get trust, you have to give trust. So how is that sort of playing out? So trying to take the step back from like labeling folks and think about what is it that you want in a relationship? How are you acting? How is the other person acting? Are you unsafe? And getting into some of those like physical safety pieces, emotional and mental safety pieces too, and sort of deconstructing what you want in a relationship. Because I think young people sometimes are like, oh, great. I have a girlfriend. I have a boyfriend. Cool. That was the goal. That's what I want to have. And this is probably my relationship. I'll probably get married to him. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because everything is so permanent at this age too. And our brains aren't thinking ahead to like, well, we might break up. No, we're not thinking that way. We haven't been hurt before. We don't, you know, kind of often, you know, again, it's an early relationship or a first relationship. So we're not really assessing what we're actually looking for. It's just what happens to come our way a lot of times. So taking that step back, thinking through those pieces. And if there is some sort of like behaviors that the person I'm working with is exhibiting to building around that empathy for them, like building up that skill of empathy on their side, like, okay, how would it feel to be the recipient? And maybe you've already been the recipient of some of those tactics. How has that impacted you? How would you want your best friend to be treated? You know, kind of building up some of those skills that they don't always get elsewhere. A lot of young people are lacking these healthy relationship role models. So that's something that we like to talk about too, is like who in your life is a healthy relationship role model? Like, okay, grandma and grandpa, cool. What about it do you like? What would you want to take away from that? And a lot of times they can't think of someone. So okay, what about a celebrity? The Obamas come up a lot. <laughs> At least they, when, when I was more directly in schools, they would come up a lot. Okay, what do you see there? Sometimes we can't get anything and we'll do, okay, what's an unhealthy relationship role model that you know of? Well, my mom and her boyfriend. Okay, what about that don't you like that you don't want to bring in to a relationship that you're going to have? So I don't know that that's a perfect answer. I went on kind of a tangent, but it's a, that's a great one. No, I really like that. I, I went off on a tangent because <laughs> I was like, this is one of those things. And I love what you're saying because like, I like that you're taking the role of this is such an important age for building skills and for understanding what's going on and how as adults and as humans and even as therapists that come in with this very black or white way of understanding people, abusive people are bad, victims are, are good, and who deserves help, you know, then we end up actually creating more and more of this problem in our world, more and more violence in our communities by dismissing this and by labeling this and, and especially in the way that we interact. And I love your approach because it's speaking to like that space of like what's within your sphere of influence, like your own behavior. And is your own behavior leading you to the relationship that you want to have? And oftentimes, and this is something we understand that even adult perpetrators of violence 
are struggling with something mental health wise, that's not an excuse for it. Absolutely. And we also can see how having more effective access to effective care is an important tool in gender-based violence prevention and reduction. And that's kind of what you're speaking to is like starting with teens that are engaging in relationships in this way who don't have these skills, don't have good models. I was kind of laughing because I was like, ooh, that's some shade to us elderly millennials here. (laughs) I know, right? (laughs) Our teens have no models of healthy relationships. I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Gen X and millennials, like that was for us guys. (laughs) (laughs) Let's work on this. Our parents' generation too, because I feel like, gosh, now as an adult who's been married for eight years, I'm like, oh man, there is a lot there that I don't want to bring with me. (laughs) Still working through that. (laughs) But yeah, but I like how it's kind of coming in and offering them this like modeling, this education, but also using the things that teens are so good at, which is learning about themselves, being open to experimenting with new ways of being, understanding the world, like the curiosity about how the world works and how it could work. And like that dream for the future, the ways in which as adults, we can be a lot more jaded and be like, well, it is what it is. There's nothing I can do to change it. And I can't change myself or I can't change this other person. So I think what you were describing was giving me a lot of hope because it was approaching all of these teens, whether they are experiencing it as someone who's acting on it, you know, and you said like, there's actually just more of this kind of cross-directional pattern that you see with teens. So whether they're experiencing it because they're acting on it or they're experiencing it, they're receiving it both, that there's all of this space of boosting a lot of understanding and skills and visioning for what they want relationships to be like. And I think the hope comes from like, that's the work that is preventing gender-based violence from becoming bigger and bigger and bigger in our world. And that's wonderful. I could talk about that for hours. Well, and there's one thing I want to clarify too, because I realized that I said sort of flippantly like, oh, I think this is the person I'm going to marry. And I'm saying that in this space, but to a young person, I would never say, oh, well, you're not going to marry them. I just wanted to clarify that because I feel like that's one of the worst things that you can do is invalidate the strong, real feelings that they have for someone that they're dating. And that could be the ticket to just have them say, well, this person, this adult does not get it. And you know what? Some people do marry the person they meet in high school. It happens. That's okay. So I just wanted, I was just thinking back to what I said. I actually want to clarify. I would not have that approach with the young person. I think for us as adults, a lot of times we're thinking like, oh, you're probably not going to be with this person forever, but it feels that way in the moment. And I think we just have to hold space for that. And I like to point out behaviors and not put down the person, because again, I think that's sort of a gateway into recognizing some of these patterns for them. That's not going to isolate them from me, which we know is key, leaving that door open. That's really awesome. And I feel like it's very meta because I was having my own experience of like, as you were saying that, like reflecting on my high school relationship as well. And I had no skills for how to end that relationship. And so like, was just like, I don't know how I'm going to do this or what's going to happen. And I can see, and, and this is what I hear from parents a lot too, is how easy it is to see your teen child or a child that you care about or a teen that you care about going through something that triggers that past for yourself 
to then want to jump in and like project your teen self onto this new teen and be like, let me rescue them from what I experienced of like, I want to tell them like, no, 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 you don't have to marry this person because what I really want to tell myself was you don't have to marry this person or you can break up. Here's the words, you know, here's the words to end this relationship right now. This is scary. It's okay for you to not like this, all that kind of stuff. But I think what you're pointing out is so important is that when we do that, when we get flooded as adults with our own experiences and get desperate to rescue somebody from our experiences and we're stuck in our feelings, we end up alienating that young person because they can see, they can easily tell they've got the best honed bullshit detectors ever. And they know when you're projecting, they can tell that this isn't about them and that you're not showing up for them, even though you think that you are. And they shut down. They're like, this is not a person to help me. This is not someone who's going to be able to help me because they're not present with me. Yeah, exactly. Exactly right. I know for myself, like as soon as you said, like, you know, a young person thinking their first boyfriend is the one they're going to marry because this is so intense. And I like sucked in breath because I was like, (laughs) (laughs) oh, yes. The breaking up aspect of it all. I think, I mean, it's obviously different if we're in an abusive situation versus just a relationship we don't want to be in anymore. We always, when I was leading our prevention education department at that first job I mentioned, We would talk all the time about developing a workshop on healthy breakups because who teaches you how to have a healthy breakup? We were like, you know, we would do mostly our presentations in schools. We're like, no one's going to schedule this workshop, but we still want to create it because what a cool set of skills to build. Even as a young adult, you know, I mean, breaking up is so hard and there are healthy ways to do it and to be okay, and to assert your needs. I think about that all the time. Like, how do I tell this person? Like, I just don't want to, I don't, I don't want to ghost them. I just want to let them know like, Hey, it's not you. It's me. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) It reminds me of, I think it was South Park episode or even the South Park movie or something where the girl that Stan has a crush on just like walks up to the boyfriend that she has at the time and goes, I break up. And then walks away. <laughs> and I was like, oh. Straight to the point. <laughs> that's pretty simple. <laughs> yeah, you got it. That's awesome. <laughs> well, thank you so much for sharing all of this information. I feel like we could continue discussing so many things about this. And I'm sure we will have more conversations about gender-based violence in adolescence and all of these wonderful prevention efforts that are happening here with all this beautiful education and skills-based training that you're doing. Do you have any like final words or key takeaways that you want to give any of the survivors, allies listening to this right now? I think for young people who might be listening, you deserve a relationship that fills you up, that makes you happy, that doesn't cause you more distress than it does joy. We all do. I think it's important to hear that when you're starting to have relationships in the first place. Think about your best friend and then the person that you want to date. I like think about that Venn diagram of like, what are the things that overlap between those two people? You deserve that. And I think for allies, you know, we've covered a lot of, I think some of the key takeaways is just not minimizing this issue due to age, which I think can be an easy trap to fall into. And those pieces, that we talked about before, just leaving that door open, trying not to set it up to where they feel like they're going to 
be disappointing you if they don't leave the relationship, if they don't break up with that person right away, because typically they won't, or maybe they'll get back together. I mean, that's so, so, so common. Just trying to remain open, not judgmental, take them seriously. I think it can make a big difference. And being, I always think about that, like extra supportive adult. If you're not someone's caregiver, the aunt, the uncle, that person can be really, really important. And any of us can be that for any young person that we know in our life. Absolutely. Oh, I love that. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Thank you all for joining us in this episode and connecting with our badass community. Thank you to Sam Valentine and her awesome team at Fast Forward Productions for producing, editing, publishing, and all around making this podcast possible. If you found something in this episode that resonated with you, please rate and review on your favorite podcast platform. This quick but meaningful action supports the show and helps make us more visible to other survivors and allies who might be looking for support and connection. I love connecting with listeners, survivors, and allies. So if you found something in this episode useful or interesting, please screenshot the episode and share it on your stories and tag me at Initiated Survivor. An important and final note, while I am a clinical psychologist, this episode and podcast is not a replacement for mental health care. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Neither the hosts nor the guests are rendering mental health or other professional advice. And this podcast does not constitute an established professional relationship. If you are looking for mental health care or professional help, please seek it out. We have some links in the show notes that may assist with this, or you can contact your insurance carrier for a referral.